When things get darkest, we must be our brightest. We must love our hardest. You're listening to Better, and I'm your host, Mark Brand. I deeply believe that everyone has the power to leave the planet a better place than they found it. In my decades of frontline work, I've seen it happen against all odds in the toughest corners of the world. This show was created as a guide to share stories of resilience and hope from the brightest individuals who have overcome challenges we all face to help us all envision and build a better life. Every week, my incredible guests and I will give you access to the conversations we've been having behind closed doors, away from stages, and away from traditional media. Until now, we share this space with the explicit intention to empower you to be your biggest, brightest, most beautiful self, so we can build a better world together. Welcome to Better. It's been, I was counting back, since our friend, our mutual friend, Crystal Lawton, had us both speak at the launch of her film, right. Us and Them, which was 2018. Yeah. Wow. Right? So it's been four years. And it feels like, to me, I was like, oh, I just saw Gabor probably a year or two or three. And no, it's four. Um, so really nice to see your face and glad to hear that you're, you're doing well amongst all of this above all. Thank you. Yeah. And so, folks, my guest today, I'm so excited about. Uh, I've been able to be adjacent to this man's work for the last 15 years mm. in Vancouver's downtown east side, where I've owned and operated spaces. In the last 10, I've worked specifically with a population that I help around food security and food sovereignty and also with upward mobility, of course. But I didn't understand or have the tools in dealing with folks who were facing these challenges. And one of my first Bibles and tool books was in the realm of hungry ghosts by this gentleman, Dr. Gabor Mate, who's worked for over a decade in the exact same neighborhood with patients struggling with drug addiction, with street entrenchment, with mental health. But he's also an incredibly well-respected speaker and an expert on addiction, childhood development, the relationship with stress and illness, trauma in general. And one of the few people in our country that I believe deserves the Order of Canada that he received <laughs> for his uh, incredible medical work in this field. And of course, is a best-selling author of the book that I mentioned before, but also When the Body Says No, and an upcoming book co-written with his son, Daniel, The Myth of Normal, which I'm really looking forward to. And we're going to get to unpack a lot of this stuff. But first, I've introduced you with all of the accolades. How do you like to introduce yourself these days? <laughs> You know, I never introduced myself, so I don't know. I, you know, um, I'm in a very fortunate position of having had a, a rich medical career where I've had a lot of experiences um, dealing with people from birth to death and all kinds of crises. And uh, I've been through my own crises and occasionally still go through them and uh, put that together along with all the scientific literature that I've been able to review I've learned a lot about the world, I believe, and uh, learned about the nature of human beings and why we suffer and how we overcome suffering and uh, what life is about. And uh, I'm fortunate enough to be able to speak my truth. And uh, these days, a lot of people listen. Uh, and uh, I just introduced myself at this point as a very grateful old guy, I guess. <laughs> 
Well, on behalf of everybody who's been affected by your work, including myself very deeply, let me thank you for also being in the space of your truth and sharing it so generously with us consistently. And mm. one of the pillars of that work and understanding um, as a recovered addict on multiple levels personally, that's you know one of the one of the levers you help us pull is with our loved ones to mm-hmm. say, I don't have the words to be able to describe what this is for me, but here's mm-hmm. some. <laughs> here's some words that not only you can read, but might help you understand me better so that we can get back to a place of healing. And when you talk about addiction, I love your definition of it, first of all. And let me share that with folks. And when we talk about addiction, we talk about literally everything that you're addicted to. So there couldn't be a more poignant time to be having this conversation after being yeah. isolated for a yeah. couple of years. Addiction is manifested in any behavior that a person craves, finds temporary relief or pleasure in, but suffers negative consequences as a result of, and yet has difficulty giving up. And so I love, I think that's the most succinct and brilliant definition of addiction. What is the work behind the statement? You know, obviously when we do the synthesis and we distill, what led to this synopsis? What led to it was my uh, observation of the area that you and I have both worked in, the downtown east side and the desperate lives of the people there and the desperation that drove them into those lives but also my own experience and uh, and and the recognition that when we speak of addiction we usually think of people using drugs but really uh, by that definition and in practical terms it include your relationship to eating to shopping to work to um sex to pornography to gambling to the internet to your cell phone uh extreme sports uh, shopping maybe i've said already so that addiction really is it's not the um target that defines the addiction it's your relationship to that target which is characterized by craving and relief and pleasure and negative consequences and inability to give it up and when people read my book in the realm of funky ghost i'm often told you humanize the drug addicts you know and i'm thinking even that's a strange way to speak because who said they weren't human in the first place you're right you you know and and when you look at addiction from the perspective of the definition mark you just articulated it's just the most human activity there is because Mm. if i ask you or anybody else who's or myself who's ever had an addictive pattern if I ask you, what did it do for you? What would you answer? What did it give you in the short term? Yeah, just pain. Sorry? Maybe relief, but then ultimately pain. And it's six. No, but originally, what did you crave about it? What did you like about it? Oh, the dopamine and serotonin hits. No, no, but don't get analytical. What feeling, okay. what experience did you want? I wanted to feel joy or acceptance or love. Okay, thank you. Now, mm-hmm. joy, acceptance, and love are normal human, normal human aspirations. In fact, we're born for them. There's nothing more human than wanting joy and acceptance and love. As a matter of fact, we're designed for it. Right. And so that there's nothing more human. Uh, the, 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 the question then becomes, how did you or anybody else lose joy and acceptance and love in your life? Mm. But, but the desire for it is so human. So when you say what's behind the definition, human experience is behind the definition. 
Beautiful. And so I, this is a chicken and egg portion for me that I've always been curious and I've never gotten to ask you before. So I want to ask you now yeah. is when we find compassion for others, ultimately it leads into the awareness of compassion for ourselves. Was that the case for you with your own addiction and, and being able to reflect? Did you have to go outwards to go inwards? That's a great, that's a great dilemma you just posed. Um, I think it works both ways sometimes. Um, okay. In my case, it came more from the outside in, you know, and mm -hmm. and so when you think of what compassion is, it's it's well the the word itself comes from the Latin, I think. Uh, passion is to suffer, and uh, calm is with. To compassion is to suffer with. In other words, when somebody else suffers, it hurts you. That's compassion. You know, if you see a homeless person, you should be hurt. Your heart should ache, you know, or a child in trouble or a dog that's suffering. I mean, you know, so, but it's not enough. It's not enough to feel bad about people suffering. You have to also ask why. And so as a physician, that's how I came to it. Like I had to start asking the question, why do people suffer? Like if somebody is, 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 is requiring heroin to soothe their pain, how did they incur that pain in the first place? And once you understand the trauma and the suffering that always precedes addiction, always, always, and sometimes people think they had happy childhoods, but it usually takes me three minutes to <laughs> actually show them the suffering they really had. Right. Once you understand the suffering, then you naturally, that arises compassion in you. And, you know, I'm certainly not the first one to say that. The great... Vietnamese Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh, who just died last week. Rest in That's what he says. He says that, you know, when you understand somebody's suffering, you right away have compassion for them. So for me, as a physician, it happened that way. And I found it more difficult to have compassion for myself. Now, other people, right. they, they do the work, they develop compassion for themselves, and they can extend it to others. So in answer to your question, I think it can happen both ways. Beautiful. And I want to dig much more into the awareness of addiction and that transference and how the transcendence of it um, yeah. when we come back. So folks, you are listening to Better. I am Mark Brand. We are listening to the incredible wisdom uh, of my friend, Dr. Gabor Mate, and we've just scraped the surface. So keep it locked and we'll be right back with you. Welcome back to Better. I'm your host, Mark Brand, and we're here today with Dr. Gabor Mate. In our first segment, we talked a little bit about addiction, a little bit about background and our works and awareness and compassion, the definition of and how we experience things. One of the sentiments that I try to yell at anybody who will listen is if the community is unwell, we are all unwell. And I repeat it daily as a mantra because we feel all of the things that Dr. Mate shared with us earlier. And in that, awareness of our own issues is a mirror. So we often project our own judgment on folks to feel some sort of way or to process something, but we don't look at it. And so, Dr. Mate, uh, a quote of yours I also love, an awareness of your own addiction is, for a long time, I wanted to distract myself from my own mind because I was afraid to be alone with it. If there's a more relatable statement, I don't know what it is. Can you mm -hmm. unpack that a little bit for us? Sure, but before I do, let me just riff a bit on what you said about the community. So what, what you said there, Mark, 
is ancient wisdom. You know, uh, um, uh, in my new book, The Myth of Normal, I actually quote this. There's a friend of mine, a Lakota um, American uh, psychiatrist, physician called Louis Mel Madrona, and he says that in the Lakota tradition, when somebody gets sick, the whole community says, thank you, you're manifesting the illness of the whole community. Mm. You're the canary in the mind, so that your healing is our healing. And uh, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about it in the same terms. So, and, and, and not only is this ancient wisdom, it's also been proven by modern science. That we, mm -hmm. that we interact and our brains and our physiologies affect each other so that illness in one person, including addiction in one person, is not a manifestation of a separate, isolated physiological entity, but represents something about the environment, the family and the community and the culture. So that's just such an important point. I wanted to emphasize it. Now, in terms of my, um, and this I'm talking about modern science has proven ancient wisdom, although unfortunately the medical profession and society still doesn't get it despite all the evidence all right so having said that the discomfort in my own mind so uh, you know my first book was on adhd with which i was diagnosed when i was in my mid-50s and adhd the tuning up the absent-mindedness represents and the boredom when i'm not doing something represents a real discomfort with my mind now why would i be uncomfortable with my mind Nobody's born uncomfortable with their mind. Right. But when a, when a child has experiences that are uncomfortable or highly stressful and even traumatic, then the mind becomes a very uncomfortable place because the brain develops an interaction with the environment and the brain carries all the imprints of that early discomfort. And um, so then you grow up being very uncomfortable in your own skin, looking for distraction all the time from the outside. And when that distraction is not available, I mean, just ask, you ask the average person, what do they feel for a minute where they have nothing to do? When they're not on their cell phone or watching television or trolling the internet or talking with somebody or doing something, you know? People have real discomfort with their minds which speaks to their stressful childhood experiences and how they were programmed. Um, so, and, and particularly in my case as an infant, I wasn't picked up when I needed to be. I wasn't right. fed when I needed to be. Um, so so you know, you're lying there feeling really uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable to be alone. So the source of that mental discomfort really is in life experience. And then, we spend our whole lives. In fact, this whole culture is uh, masterful at exploiting people's discomfort with themselves. All these products just to get away from our unease. Yeah, capitalism has really benefited based off the under same understandings we have that could heal us. They're using to further isolate and, and create yeah. pain, unfortunately, because the pain pain pays. It really helps the machine continue to move. Because we will do anything, oh, yeah. anything for your prompts from me earlier. Oh, yeah. And, and so the, 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 the way this culture operates is that it um, creates a lot of discomfort for people. Nobody is, this is not a plot. It's not like anybody's planning this behind a curtain, but it's just how it functions naturally. It uh, creates a lot of discomfort for people in all kinds of reason, ways. And then it sells them all these products to soothe mm -hmm. the discomfort. It's perfect. 
it's a perfect system. It really is. As a consumer of many of those products in my own awareness, yeah. um, it, it's still, it's so much a part of our daily lives that we're just, we're in that space. I can't have one streaming service. I have to have all of them. I couldn't miss this thing. Right. Um, you know, the, the way that we consume and distract and it's not one social media platform, it's nine yeah. and cycling through them and jumping back and forth to be seen, to be heard, to feel like you matter. Um, and just basing that off, off again external in, inputs right. versus your own comfort. And so there's so much work to be done there. But I wanted to to take a quick pause because when you say you didn't get picked up enough, there's a lot more to that externally for you in that space. You didn't get picked up enough in Nazi-occupied Hungary. So your inception, like how much does that impact and how much of that do we carry in our body, in our mind? As a Jewish infant living under the Nazis, uh, I had a mother who was terrorized and depressed and grief-stricken. Her parents were killed in Auschwitz. My father was in a forced labor battalion. She didn't know if he was dead or alive. So you can imagine the terror. And, and you know, then we, we were ourselves um, at risk of being deported and sent to the death camps. And, uh, you know, but for a month or two, we might have been, you know. And, and then again, terror uh, and then the bombing of the city by the allies and hunger and the illness, all that, you know, and then separation from my mother when I was a year old, or 11 months old for about five or six weeks. But take away all that, forget all that for a minute. Just look at my mother's diary when I'm three weeks of age and she's writing, my poor little Gabor, my heart breaks for you because you've been crying for an hour and a half, wanted to be fed, but I promised the doctor that I wouldn't feed you except on schedule, and it's not time yet. Mm, now, what's Jesus. it like? What's it like for a three-week-old to lie there crying? And the, my poor mom, who really was heartbroken, but she was a good citizen. She followed the orders of the doctors. as, right. and, and mothers are still given such advice, by the way. So what's it like for a three-week-old three, three who's desperate for physical contact and, 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 and the comfort of the suckling at the breast to be left unattended or unresponded to. So that alone will make me really uncomfortable with myself. Forget all the other stuff about Nazis and war and, and, and genocide. Um, so, and, and so it, it, it doesn't have to be as um, dramatic as all that. Right. And definitely, but I think, you know, the, the question that's going to be on a lot of the folks who are listening that aren't familiar with this in themselves, in others, it may feel a little distance. And we often use the terminology original wound or original wounds. Like yeah. when is the one that happened that you're consistently trying to heal that you may be projecting in your relationships, whether it be intimate or interpersonal yeah. with friends? Like it, how did you discover your original wound? Like how do you go back and do that work? Because ultimately in this episode, I want people to get some tools too. Well, so I'll, get, I'll give you a clue. <clears throat> I can't recall being separated from my mother. She gave me to a stranger to save my life. Literally, that's what happened in the street. A Christian woman. So I didn't see her for five or six weeks. Now, I don't recall that. I've been to the very spot in Budapest where this happened. There's a museum there now, uh, not because of me, but because of other circumstances. 
I don't recall that happening, but I remember it because my wife doesn't give me a hug or when I want it or doesn't show up to pick me up at the airport when she promised to because she forgot about it and she's too busy painting in her studio. I would experience this deep sense of abandonment and rejection and pain and, and you know. Now, here's a clue that I'm giving you, is that in your life, whoever you are, whenever you get triggered, in other words, whenever the, in retrospect, the emotional reaction to the present moment seems out of keeping with the actual stimulus. Mm -hmm. If I go into a funk, because my wife wasn't at the airport and hurt and abandoned, it's not about her not being at the airport. It's about the the, the feelings that I'm carrying, so right. of abandonment and rejection and and need, and so that these triggers, when you get triggered, that's a great opportunity for you to go up, because when you look at triggers, if you even if you look at the word trigger, if you look at the the weapon, the trigger is a very small little thing, isn't it? I mean. Mm. The, there's ammunition, there's explosive material, there's, there's a machinery to deliver the ammunition. Now, we could focus on the trigger. You said this and that triggered me. Or you did this or you didn't do that. and that Or you can say, oh, what's the ammunition that I'm carrying? You know, what's the explosive charge that is within me? So that when we get triggered in the present moment, it's always about the past. We're never upset about what we think we're upset about. Right. I love that. Especially. I, I said, I said if we could get a tool and you were like, here, here's the one. <laughs> can yeah, can yeah. I offer you the one to, to dig in? That's about 10 years of inquiry with any good therapist. Folks, we are on better uh, with my friend, Dr. Gabor Mate. Um, we are going to be back with you very shortly. I want to dig into Western medicine because we touched on we are using the wrong applications. We are putting too much trust, even from early childhood, in not responding to our human, but responding to the system. And so I want to hear more in the next segment about Western medicine failing to treat the whole person. And we'll dig into his upcoming book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture, written with his son. Keep it locked. You're on better. And I'm your host, Mark Brand. You're back on Better. I'm with my friend, Dr. Gabor Mate, and we're discussing all things, all things today, trauma, inquiry, the community, Western medicine. We're going to talk later about compassionate inquiry and a methodology around that. And in my compassionate inquiry in our last segment about some tools, we discussed the trigger and the analogy that you gave about the whole gun and the ammunition and what's coming up from the past is so incredibly important to our growth because we have to honor and acknowledge what has happened to us yeah. in order to heal it. It's yeah. so critical. And so, so, if get, um, so if I get upset, right. I could accuse my, what an idiot, why did I get so upset for? Or I could say, hmm, why did I get so upset? What happened? What's the explosion? What's the charge inside me that got triggered? So it is a matter of inquiring compassionately. And so when we make that inquiry, what happens? What's the best way to sort of sit with it and then to process it? What do we do? Well, here's what I believe. Um, and I have strong grounds for believing it. That fundamentally, everything that we think is wrong with us 
whether it's our relationship difficulties, our defensiveness, our addiction, our dysfunction, there's a reason for it all. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with any of us. But life has imposed certain experiences which made us react in certain ways and, and become defensive or become suspicious or become angry or become shy or become withdrawn or become self-suppressed, become addicted. Not because we're fundamentally flawed, but because we're humans and um, we responded that way to these experiences. And so with recognizing that and having compassion for every human being and, and every aspect of ourselves, even the aspect of ourselves that give us the most difficulty and may have caused us pain, may even have caused other people pain. I mean, if we can inquire into it compassionately, like Mark, you've owned, a, you know, you've had addictions. I'm sure that if you're like me, your addictions didn't just hurt you, it also must have hurt people around you. And there's a terrific shame that arises with that or, or comes mm -hmm. with that. Well, if you can actually be compassionate towards yourself, you'll realize that you never meant to hurt anybody. That wasn't right. your intention. So it's not a matter of excusing anything um, or justifying anything. It's just a matter of saying, well, this is why it happened. This is what was driving me. I need to understand that so as not to be that way again. And if I'm that way again, I'll need to ask again, hmm, why did I do that? You know, so that's what the inquiry looks like. And very much the case. No, it's good to get help with it, but but that's what it looks like. Right, right. Um, and yes, in, in personal experience, uh, and in multiple relapses, I hadn't dug deep enough yeah. into hidden assumptions, into my implicit memories and body states that were like processing continually. And yeah. so when I thought I had nipped it in the bud, I thought the commitment to sobriety was enough. Mm -hmm. we're, we're told that, right? We're like, if you commit to self, it, you're going to be in good shape. And I was like, now that I'm committed to self, I, I think I might feel worse. Is that possible? <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, you feel a lot worse because now you're coming face to face with any of the collateral things that occurred. And so yeah. it's, it's a consistent, like, even now there's still things that are unfolding for me. And my personal practice is to send those notes as they mm. occur for me, not in a way mm. of absolution, but in a mm. way of like, Hey, I have this memory that has occurred to me and mm. I am truly sorry about X particular thing. Um, this is in no way you don't need to respond to this or anything else, but this is, this is what has occurred. That's one of the 12 steps, isn't it? Is it? And I'm not familiar with the 12 step programs that, that well, I'm not that well. Yeah, no, 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 it's one of the steps is that, is, is that you own uh, where you've hurt other people and where it's appropriate, you take responsibility for it, you know? Right. You don't do this right. so that you can feel better. You're doing this so that to take responsibility. Now, if it's not appropriate, you leave that other person alone, you know? Right. But, but, but that's, it's one of the 12 steps and it's a very powerful one. It, it, it's called moral inventory. Ooh, 
That's, that's great terminology around that. Yeah. And a, a, a lot of friends have used that process and it worked really well for them. Um, yeah. And so anybody out there struggling, obviously, with this stuff, it goes without saying, please do seek the help you need. You're worth it and, and invest in that and in you because we need as many of us healthy and working on these issues as possible together. Again, mm. communities unwell, we're all unwell. And so I would love to hear a bit about, and we'll use uh, this time and then the next segment too, I really want to dig into this myth of normal because I, I love this conversation, right? I believe that we live in an existence that is, again, not created by shadow, but has just been created by a set of circumstances and some very opportunistic people who've created our consumption that is killing our planet, that is killing us. Um, and so this myth of normal in this new book that you're writing about talks about trauma, illness, and healing a toxic culture. Can we define a toxic culture to start? Well, I will, but I actually have a request. Um, Please. The book does not come out till September, and my publicists have actually forbidden me for doing interviews about the book just yet. You know? Okay, great. So great. let me talk about it quickly, and let me invite myself back onto your program in the fall when the book actually comes out. <laughs> done and done. I love all of that. Okay, great. Um, talk about self-serving, conniving, eh? Uh, I'm into anyway, it. Yeah. And anyway, um, so toxic culture. Here's the simplest analogy I can give you. Okay. If you're a laboratory scientist, and if you're trying to grow microorganisms, where would you put them in? You'd put them in a Petri dish, with a kind mm -hmm. of broth. We call that a culture medium. Okay. So the culture is the environment in which an organism develops. Now, in the case of bacteria in a laboratory, that's a simple liquid with some nutrients in it and certain temperature. For a human being, that culture is uh, the economics and politics and family life and uh, work life and... Uh, entertainment and uh, activities and values and assumptions and beliefs of their culture. Now, if in that laboratory example, a lot of the microorganisms were dying off or getting sick or, or just not doing well, not reaching their potential, we'd call that a toxic culture. Right. Now, if you look at our culture today, uh, human culture, there's more and more people getting autoimmune disease, more and more people getting de depressed, more children are getting diagnosed with this, that, and the other, more and more people are being medicated for, for, for anxiety, more people are self-cutting, the drug overdose crisis does not abate. In other words, if you look at it, this is a toxic culture, and we have to believe that this is normal. Right. Well, right. it may be the norm, but there's nothing healthy or natural about it. So that's the toxic culture and that's the myth of normal. There's more to it than that, but that's it in a nutshell. Well, we will definitely get you back to talk about it <laughs> as you're at liberty to do so. Folks, you're on Better. Um, I'm Mark Brandon. This is my guest today, friend Dr. Gabor Mate. When we come back, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into the know us and them, um, the environment that this toxic culture is sort of created, but also the addiction to power because there's a lot of finger pointing in our work of that's not my responsibility, that's so-and-so's responsibility. And that has created such a divisive culture versus us taking responsibility for what's around us. And so we will be back. Keep it locked. You're on better.
folks, we are back on better with my friend, Dr. Gabor Mate, who's been so generous and given us so many tools already today. But one of my favorite things that he says is in this addiction to power. And addiction to power, just language in general, but it's so easily misinterpreted. So I love these spaces for us being able to flush them out. And the quote is, as we look at this difficult world with the loss of the environment and global warming and the depredations in our oceans, let's not look to the people in power to change things because the people in power, I'm afraid to say, are very often some of the emptiest people in the world and they're not going to change things for us. Yes, that part. So who is going to change things, Doc? Well, I mean, the first requirement for any momentum towards change is that people get, number one, they just get how difficult and how non-human so much of what happening is. It is non-human, I mean, it undermines our humanity, undermines our capacity to live fully and to live healthily and to live, even to live, if you look at the climate crisis. So that's the first thing, is that people should not take this, the present situation as this is the way it has to be. They need to get that it really doesn't work in significant ways. I mean, look, here we are in North America and Canada specifically, but or the U.S., the richest, most resourced societies in the history of the world. And look how many people are hungry, or how many people are struggling. And look how many people are just sheer insecure. Like, even the average person with a stable income has no worked to worry about inflation and that, you know, the sheer insecurity that people are having to live with. But do we, is this the only way it can be? So people have to get that this just doesn't work than all the illnesses that I've talked about and so on. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, can we even allow ourselves to imagine that it doesn't have to be this way? Right. Can we even, you know, now the reality is that systems always change and they go under and new systems arise. This is history. Now, how to make positive change happen I don't know that that's a decision any individual or any group of individuals can make. And, and f- because I think history has got its own wheels and gears, you know, and when things happen historically, it's often beyond the will of individuals or even groups. Having said that, um, do we give up and just wait for things to change? No. It's a question of what can we do, each of us, both on an individual and a collective level? So that's the question every person has to decide for themselves. If it matters to me what kind of world I live in, my children live in, my grandchildren will live in, or if I don't have grandchildren, which I don't, then other people's grandchildren, if that matters to me, then what can I do at this point? And that's a highly individual decision. For me, um, it's been the work that I've done. And it's been my speaking out wherever I can, not just on medical matters, but on matters of political principle and social value when I have the opportunity to do so. Um, to work with organizations, other people who have similar goals. And what I'm saying is that even though the wheels of history are beyond the capacity of any one of us to turn by ourselves, 
we can make a contribution. And yeah. we, we can make that contribution by healing ourselves, uh, by healing our families, and then doing what we can to heal our communities. Now listen, I'm aware as I'm speaking that I'm mouthing a bunch of cliches, you know, and um, that doesn't mean cliches are not, not necessarily things that, that aren't true, but mm, there's something lacking there. The, answer, the, the reason it's lacking is I can't tell you how to change society. I can't tell you. I know the direction I like to see it going, but I can't tell sure. you how to change it, and I can't tell you what to do. So fundamentally, all I can say is make the contribution that appeals to you, but wake up and see what's mm -hmm. going on and see if you want to contribute. That's the best I can say to people at this point. Now, if you want know my personal opinions on politics and history, I can give them to you. But, <laughs> yeah, but, that's, no not really but that's not really relevant. <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, it, it is to, to me for sure. But on the broader sw swipe, you know, I think just reflecting a little bit of that, I'm consistently working to have people become advocates, right? So yeah. I build spaces to create intersectionality Yes. Or places where people in society can be around each other and understand how they can be most helpful and become activated. But what I see to individuals that I either mentor or when I'm speaking to schools or whatever I'm working with is find a skill that you wish you could use more, yeah. that you really love doing. Yeah. And that could be something you're already doing or it could be something that you consider a hobby. It could be something that you put away 20 years ago. For me, it was being a chef. I started cooking at 14, wow. put it away for 15 years and then dug into it. And it's now I travel the world and do it mm. to talk about climate impact, to talk about poverty, to have people with me. Because mm. I, I realized if I use this particular skill I care about, I will put tons of energy towards it. Yeah. But I also got very pragmatic and said, how much time do I have to do this? Yeah. Really genuinely to start. And I was like, I got an you know, maybe a day a month. And so I took that day and I stayed beholden to it and I created an event to do. And then I just felt how it, it eventually changed my life in the direction of making an impact in a much bigger way. Mm. And one that I was already making in a smaller way, but it's, it was truly that like when you say what ignites you or what, what lights you up, we got to find that light within ourselves, which is something that I always love that you say. I know the audience can't see us, but I can see you and you're whole body is animated and your voice is really energized when you talk about this, you know, and yeah. you use two words that, that, that you couldn't have known, but is actually in the very last chapter of, of the myth of normal, which is, you know, where we're looking at a, to, to path, you know, a saner society. And then the two things, the two words that you used was um, advocacy and activism. And that's mm -hmm. exactly what we say in that chapter is that, right. uh, Part of healing the society is people taking on advocacy and taking on activism. So we're totally aligned on that one. Yeah, I mean, and also it can be so overwhelming. So, folks, I, I thoroughly encourage you to pick up In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. And the conversation that we've had here today is obviously scratching the surface, and there's so many more tools. And those tools are important because when we talk about advocacy and activists, there has to be safe space for people to ask questions that make them feel uncomfortable or not in the know, if you will. They make them feel stupid, to be frank. And so we don't create those spaces. And I've said many times, as activists, we can be incredibly exclusionary. And it's outside of our awareness often that we are, because we expect that you come to us with a level of education that is sometimes, it's just impossible. 
And so how do we create those spaces? So really digging into the tools and doing some work yourself and discovering with self. Um, this has been better with Dr. Gabor Mate. We have a few minutes left on the radio. Is there anything that you would like to share with the folks at home that we didn't get to cover? Uh, only you alluded to this and the conversation, which I've thoroughly enjoyed, it went by so fast. There's much more to my work than addiction. Um, I'm really interested in the whole unity of mind and body, uh, how they affect not how mind and body are one unit and how all illness, mental or physical, manifests that unity. And so the 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 splitting that Western medical practice makes between mind and body and how when people get physically ill, nobody looks at the emotional background to what really made them ill or what contributed to that illness. So that's another book of mine. So I, I'm just, what I'm trying to say is that everything needs to be looked at in from a holistic, connected perspective, not for ideological reasons, because that's what reality is. Reality is connected. Reality is holistic. And any approach to medicine or politics or culture or anything that is not looking at the whole just doesn't get reality. Thank you so much. I I'm just I feel an uh, overwhelming amount of gratitude, not mm -hmm. only for your time, but for your truth. Uh, and I've gotten goosebumps quite literally a dozen times since we started talking and it has gone by so fast. And so folks, if you're tuned in on the radio, this has been better. My friend, Dr. Gabor Mate, who has already announced that he will be back soon, which <laughs> we will be looking forward to. But if you are listening to this on a podcast, um, we're going to continue this conversation because there's no way you can leave me with that. Sure. <laughs> you can't say, but also all of this. So if you are listening on the radio, wherever you consume your podcast, the extended version will be available. This has been Better, and I'm Mark Brand. So let's unpack that. I, I know I, I hear a request to talk more about it, and so I'm, I'm here to listen. Okay. Um, so let's, let me na name you a few facts, okay? Okay. Rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune condition in which the immune system, which is designed to protect our bodies actually attacks the body itself. It's one of many such conditions. Colitis, Crohn's disease, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, um, multiple sclerosis, I could go on and on and on. So rheumatoid arthritis didn't used to exist amongst Canada's indigenous population, didn't used to exist. Today, an indigenous woman has six times the risk of getting rheumatoid arthritis than other people do in this country. Six times the risk. What? Yeah. That's one fact I'll tell you. Another fact I'll tell you is the study that came out three years ago from Harvard that showed that women with severe post-traumatic stress disorder have doubled the risk of ovarian cancer. And the, and the milder their symptoms, the less the risk of ovarian cancer. That's the second fact I'll tell you. The third fact I'll tell you is that children, this has been shown by multiple studies, children whose parents are stressed have a significantly elevated risk of developing asthma. That's the third fact. The fourth fact, and the final one for now, is that an American black woman 
this has been shown too, the more episodes of racism she experiences, the greater her risk for asthma. Wow. Now, what do all these four facts have in common? It has to do with that the more stressed people are, the more likely they are to develop physical diseases. But when you go to a doctor with rheumatoid arthritis or asthma or ovarian cancer, the average physician will not ask you about your life. They will not ask you about your childhood, any traumas that you endured, um, stresses in your life, even though those have everything to do with why you're there in the first place. And not only that, dealing with those issues, and I multiple documented cases of this in all manner, all manner of diseases, and I personally witnessed it too, dealing with those issues can actually help mitigate the illness in many, many, many cases. So I'm not just talking theory here. Now, the reason nobody's going to ask you those questions is because the average medical student is not educated in the more than adequately, beyond adequately proven science of mind-body unity. There's tens of thousands of research papers that show how stress, fear, anger, or the suppression of anger cause inflammation in the body, promote illness, how racism inflames cells, interferes with genetic activity, um, uh, elevates chemicals in the blood that lead to disease. This isn't sort of theoretical um, imagining. This is what studies published in major medical papers and scientific papers have shown over and over again. And yet this unity is utterly ignored in medical training. Right. You know, and so um, it's the same with addiction. You know, like addiction is defined as a kind of a brain disease. You know, it isn't. You know, but again, it manifests a whole life, as we said in the previous part of this podcast. And so does virtually every other illness, whether of the mind or the body. And so what I'm saying is, we need to look at the whole picture. We need to look at the human being in the context of her, his, their environment. Absolutely. And so, I mean, the first question that everybody's going to ask, I'm aware of a lot of this research and study as well. Yeah. I am. Um, I was diagnosed at 25 with polycystic kidney disease. It's a generational okay. thing in my family. I've lived with it for 20 plus years. And over the last two, my kidney function's actually gone up. Hmm. And it's gone up because of the care that I show myself. And yes. that can be in some of the yes. Eastern traditions that I practice. And I get acupuncture. I drink a lot of herbal medicine. Mm. I'm very careful about my diet. And of course, the food that we make for the folks mm. of the downtown east side, we're just shy of 1,500 a day, wow. is all scratch made from community members. My executive chef is Stoho Nation. Like She's a force. Mm. The wow. energy that goes in all of that, to just say what you're saying in my own hands-on personal yeah. Yes. And it's not, it's not a maybe yeah. on the effect that we have in the community and what we do as far as feeding and nourishing people and putting genuine love and care into the food that we produce. Yes. It changes trajectories versus a, this is the lineup for the hot cup of slop or soup 
yeah. that may, you know, it doesn't nourish you. It'll keep you alive. Yeah. Like the difference, right? And so I feel like I, the analogy is the same for me in the holistic approach versus the strictly medical approach. Yeah. You can keep me alive, but my quality of life will continue to degrade because you're not treating the actual problems. Right. You're just treating the symptoms. That's right. And so, so Western medicine please. is... This is not to denigrate Western medicine. I was trained in it. I, it's a miracle. Some of what it can do, you know. It's unfortunately, it's a much more constrained miracle than it could be uh, if it aligned with ancient wisdom and modern science. So it's not about throwing out anything. It's about broadening our perspective. The complete difference between vilifying or understanding yeah right so just just saying like it's incredible it's a yes and that's right that's right that's right the, that's and the problem with my profession is um <laughs> it's not that we think that we know everything we just think that what we don't know is not worth knowing and so that <laughs> we're, we're, you know when when uh when new new research comes along that would take us away in a different direction we don't find out about it we don't read that literature we don't it's not incorporated into our training, you know, let alone are we open at looking at ancient traditions, which have so much healing wisdom to offer, mm. you know, and particularly if you look at uh, shamanic wisdom, the fundamental, well, I've, I've worked some with shamanic uh, healers and it's quite amazing. First of all, the shamanic healers, they don't go to school and write exams. They go through their deep, painful, excruciatingly difficult healing, you know, uh, number Very one. Very much so. Number two, they assume that the healing power is within yourself. And their job is to work with that and to evoke it. Now, that's very different from the Western approach. Now, you know, look, if I just broke my leg, I don't want to go to an orthopedic surgeon. That's a great mechanic. I could care less about what he thinks about my healing power, you know? <laughs> and I, I just want him to put my leg together, you know? <laughs> yes. But for chronic illnesses, and even there, the the healing energy of the person can make a big difference to the outcome. But for most chronic illnesses, it's not like that. And certainly for what we call mental illnesses, it's not like that. So that, that belief... Not, not 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 like a religious belief, but that, that that faith, that knowledge that the healing power resides in each human being. And our job is to help evoke it and to work with it. That would change the practice of medicine without having to give up all our modern skills and scientific um, awareness. Absolutely agree. So I, I work with shamanic practice, practitioners for my own healing yeah. and I'm just coming out of a journey with medicine um, mm. 10 days ago. Mm -hmm. And everything that you're saying is absolutely the practice, which is internally you go within. And yeah. so of course there's the practices that are as old as time, which is sitting in ceremony and sitting in circle. That's yeah. not something I practice. I take a much more, I would almost say medical lens to it, mm. which is I'm healing PTSD and trauma through this work. And mm. so I, it has to be entirely internal. So I'm all of my senses are shut off and then helped with, um, mm. with music. And it mm. takes me into a place of inquiry and exploration that then I'll unpack and integrate for years yes. to say, okay, I can see something different here in a yeah. um, spiritual surgery that yeah. I'm not capable of accessing without this. 
yeah. I can't I can't experience it. And so I espouse this very comfortably to to people that I care deeply about who have done all of the talk therapy, who continue to do that, which I think is incredibly important, yet another tool. Yes. Um, but that there are other tools that are way older than any of our conceptions of, of our modern work. So I yeah. really appreciate that personally and also professionally that the people who we have lived in service to, um, this, this stuff has to also penetrate through there to help uh, ease the pain, ease suffering. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think sometimes this stuff can be for the privileged. And something that we touched on a lot today is the bandwidth without saying it. It's like, where's the time for the exploration of society or community if we're consistently in a, both an escapism or barely getting by like 80% of the population who are two yeah. paychecks away from destitute? Yeah. Like, where's yeah. the space to do this exploration? So well, I would yeah, love yeah, any yeah. thoughts or guidance on that. Well, so here's the thing. like, If you had to design a system, it's not that anybody designed this. Again, I'm not talking about a plot or conspiracy. But if you had to design a system that kept people so busy and so anxious and so stressed and so focused on survival so that they don't ask those larger questions, you would design the system that we have. Right. Keeping, keeping the population unconscious is essential for the survival of the system. I mean, take a simple little thing like climate change. I mean, here in British Columbia, last summer we had a heat dome. And then we had these floods that have that killed thousands of animals and some people and destroyed homes and businesses and so on. And then we had this ice storm, you know, um, all within a space of six months. And every credible scientist will tell you that, yeah, folks, this had to do with the climate change that we've been talking about, but nobody's been listening to us for the last <laughs> 40 years. By the way, do you know when the first mention of climate change was made by a Western scientist? I don't. 1801. Wow. Yeah. Who was it? And what did they say? Alexander Van Humboldt was a German, the Humboldt current, you know, um, Humboldt yeah, current. Of yeah. He, uh, he was a German, um, naturalist and scientist and geographer and he traveled i think in venezuela he saw the effect on the climate of the colonial destruction of the forests and he said that this will have uncalculable consequences for future generations he said this in 1801 now now we're in 2022 and what i'm saying is so we we see this happening but how much time do, do, do any of us spend actually doing anything about it and to what degree doesn't it even like i was wondering like in the fraser valley where this flooding happened usually people vote conservative the conservatives have been in significant denial of climate change for decades even now they're still having to bite their tongues when they talk about it right now with those people whose farm has just been destroyed because of climate change are they going to vote differently next time? I doubt it. And, uh, so I'm not blaming them. I mean, you're saying this is how society functions. It makes us so unconscious. So that here's this emergent crisis, but we don't have the bandwidth, we don't have the energy, the time, or even the commitment to lift a finger about it. This society right. is perfect in creating people this kind of passivity 
that allows us to put up with the intolerable. Yes, and layered onto that, all of the trauma we discussed earlier yeah. in, in a sandwich of I'm not good enough, I'm not capable enough, I can't do these things anyway, and also the system is working and I have point fingers at other people. Yeah. That's the perfect storm, pun that's intended. Right. That's right. And then, then we rely on people to make decisions for us who are funded by the <laughs> same <laughs> companies that, who profit from climate change and um so i'm not sure where we got to how we got to this miserable point in our conversation <laughs> we're uh, gonna we're gonna rebound here <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna rebound. Uh, I, I, I don't I, think I, it's miserable i think it's aware I yeah think it's, you know? the, whole point. the whole the whole point is awareness and and yeah uh the system is designed to um make us passive and uh, uh and not not very aware and, and, and as you say, with the belief that we're powerless. Right. And so I think one of the great tools of the same system, I mean, we're sitting here today on technology in the comfort of our own homes. So yeah. the container is a lot easier. I use this container um, during the crisis of the pandemic we just passed through to teach people how to cook in as far places as Brownsville, Brooklyn, and in Oakland, and in areas pr predominantly black and brown folks and, and delivered groceries and used technology in a way that allowed me to be much more connected and aware. And yeah. so I think as we, even you and I slipped into this, this is our every day, and we just slipped into a, hey, we're kind of in a dark spot. It's, we're very aware of this. This is not new information to us, but yet it still has impact on our mind on our body on our body in real time yeah and so now knowing that we do something about it that we are amongst working on bringing awareness up and em empowering people creating advocates and activists which i believe is in our venn diagram of of your work our work etc is you are the solution we can help bring some tools towards but you're it and here's what i believe about you um because it's true for me um is Actually, I'm, despite all these difficult facts that we've elucidated here or enumerated here, um, I'm rather optimistic about the future, and probably so are you. And uh, I think that optimism comes not because the external facts change, but because our relationship to it changes. So that the more um, we do find our own particular path and the more we are able to act out in the world, uh, on our beliefs and and move in directions that 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 call us, the less the less miserable the conversation becomes. Actually, you know, <laughs> very much so, and that's everybody's thing, right? So if we take it, thank you, and the reflection landed and true. Yeah. I am relentlessly optimistic and not delusionally so. Yeah. It's just I've witnessed so much positive change because yeah. of my work and because of the blessing of being able to see so much of it yeah. in our neighborhood, Yeah, right? To see so many people come from what would be impossible on paper, Yeah, right? It's like, if I wrote this down, you would, there's no way you would believe me unless I could point to it. And that's, mm. I count friends in that. I count organizations in that. Um, I count leaders in that that have come, mm. you know, literally from the ashes. And so that we already know. And it's like you saying in the holistic approach, we're aware that these external forces mentally, traumatically that live in the body impact us. So we have to work to do those things and do the work on ourselves, heal ourselves, as you also said, heal yeah. our families. 
Yeah. I always say that healing ourselves is a radical act because we're told we don't deserve it. We're told yeah. there's bigger things at play. Yeah. The, what I was thinking, Mark, as you were talking is when time allows when, and, and, and the restrictions lift. And I, did, I love just, this is the second invitation to myself that I've issued in this conversation. I'd love to just come down and visit your places where you do all this stuff and just see it for myself. It would be an honor to have you in our kitchens and in our yeah. spaces. And I'll yeah, share I, one of the things that we do. But yeah. please, continue. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. It, it would be great to have you. And, you know, the neighborhood obviously is always back, a brighter back, place back when you're stepping hood. through it. Back in Yes, the man. <laughs> yes, man. And I, I mean, being very, very frank with you, I felt unsafe in stepping into an arena of activism. And I was clumsy and I was messy and I said dumb shit. Mm. And I mm. like made a whole big mess, but I knew that the truth mm. was I was supposed to be in it and mm. that by being messy and mm. not intentionally, but again, yeah. like I could fix those things, but that it yeah. had, there had to be action, yes. that it was just too much to not do anything. And yeah. there were, the divisiveness was getting deeper and people were becoming more insular. And so yeah. creating those spaces, you are, of course, you're welcome anytime, but we'll definitely set it up. And one of the things we do that you might like to attend is uh, something we designed called Plenty of Plates. Mm -hmm. And so I was witnessing how people were showing up in service, particularly in culinary, because everybody wants to cook, right? Yeah, so yeah. people come to me and be like, chef, I, I, I want to cook with you. I don't want to cook. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the record, Doc. It's on the record that you, you do not want to swing tools. That's totally fine. Um, you can serve some plates. I know that you're good at carrying I, plates, I, I right? Good, you got yeah. that part? Yeah. I, okay, uh, great. So I, the I systems call, that I, are I, built. I, go ahead. I tell you, but I, I call I I call myself the proud maker of the world's worst breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to keep that in a distance from trying to be the best breakfast in Vancouver. Okay, very good. <laughs> Um, but the system that we, the thing that we built, so again, addressing things and allowing people to be advocates and activists, people come and say, chef, I want to cook with you. And I'd say, do you know how to cook? And nine times out of 10, people wouldn't have the same awareness as the worst breakfast cook. They would say yeah. no, but that's still valuable. Right. And I'm like, no, it's, I, it's a free cooking lesson. And I don't have the bandwidth to do that with you. Um, yeah. and also I have people that I employ who are coming mm. from barriers that need that job. So right. you'd be you'd be kind of taking stuff away from them. They're like, oh, I didn't even think of that. So I'd say, yeah. what do you do? Yeah. Right? And what yeah. could you be effective in? And after a while, again, I practiced a lot of design thinking methodologies, did a lot of training there. I love it. I was like, design for the energy. And so if people say that to you, design for it. And so mm -hmm. I created this thing called Plenty of Plates where you bring 12 friends. We teach you how to cook for 75 people. Wow. And then you set up the restaurant with, candles flowers menus music and you're directly in service and we work with of course every organization down there from luma housing to atira and invite residents predominantly women and children fleeing violence and you're in service to them so you're not just seeing the guy on the corner with the cardboard and the yellow mustache and the dog yeah because that's that's your your point of design you're seeing the actual people afflicted who are the 90 percent, not discounting that human but of the other portion, and you can then say, this is not tolerable for me, mm -hmm. and I need to look at the system underlying and start to work on it. So those are the sorts of things that we, I work really heavily on because in each of those, 12 to 15 people leave there forever changed yeah. and say, I'm going to use my power in a way, and mm -hmm. maybe only two of them do in the long run. Maybe you know, 10 of them do the next day, who can say? But they will have a different lens, and there's an approachability Versus all the other systems where, and not to begrudge them, you sign this, you know, a stack of paper 
the size of the yellow pages of waivers and disclaimers. And then you're not allowed to talk to anybody mm. and you just serve out like what feels like prison food. And so that's not getting us any further. And I think, you know, in, in creating those systems, it just allows for a little more compassion. So I would love you to come down and see it. It's a deal. I get very excited about sharing it. If you couldn't tell <laughs> very active. Yeah, one wouldn't have known. <laughs> <laughs> I'm jumping out of my chair on the other side over here. Um, well, I'm super excited to have you back, but I think, you know, a request that I would have in this last, you know, few moments or minutes or whatever we decided is, is there anything else that's come up or arisen for you that you haven't got a chance to share yet today? Well, What what arises when you ask that question is, I haven't talked about the importance of those early moments in life, um, which actually begin already in the womb, so that even the stresses of a mother during pregnancy will have a significant impact on the future life experience of the child. Mm -hmm. There was a study recently that looked at stress on mothers during pregnancy and 45 years later that still affected how the brains of these adults reacted to stress wow. so um in this society unlike in indigenous societies we just don't value childhood we see childhood um more like as a training for adulthood rather than as a time when human beings develop into their full selves. And um, young families under such stress and pregnant mothers are under such stress. And if we understood the scientific reality of human beings develop, that alone, my friend, the children's troubadour, Rafi, has got this concept um, of a child honoring society. And so what if we Forget everything else that we said today, Mark. What if we just ask ourselves, what kind of society, what kind of conditions, circumstances do children need? Do children require for their health development? That question alone would change this whole society. Wow. Yeah, it would. It's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot, a lot. And so in the conditions that we currently have, we say, oh, you're pregnant? Cool. We're going to need you to work straight up until it's medically not safe to do so. Exactly. <laughs> and the and, 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 then we want, and then we want you to come back as work as soon as possible. <laughs> exactly. And so it's in not a rare case where abandonment is a childhood trait or in, imposed. It's universal. It's a common experience in this culture. It's a common experience. If, if you look at physiologically and psychologically, the child needs to be on the parent or on the parent for the first several years of life. So a lot of children experience literally was abandonment in this culture because they, not that the parents intend to abandon them. It's just that the force of circumstances constrain parents or, or coerce them into not being with their kids so early and so much of the time. We have no idea of the impact of that. And then we're wondering why more and more young people are diagnosed with everything. And why, more, and why anxiety is the fastest growing diagnosis in this country. You know, so 
Yeah, I'm just, again, I'm just saying that just that one question, what kind of circumstances would we want to create to promote children's healthy development? That question alone, if asked consciously and sincerely, would change everything about our system. It definitely would. I, I'm just I'm, you know, reflecting to the systems and the spaces that I see. We work with a lot of women and children yeah. and a lot of women and children fleeing violence and coming from extreme poverty. And yeah. In those spaces, there is community, and you and I have witnessed it in the downtown east side too, there's community that is, it harkens back to original community, which is a shared resource, whether that be time or care right. or food right. or yeah. love. You know, yeah. you're raised by your aunties and uncles. I was raised by my aunties and uncles. Some of them weren't even my blood because mm. my parents needed to work all the different jobs. So mm -hmm. I would like go to a corner store and spend my lunches when I was, you know, a kid. And that was, that felt safe and trusting and loving yeah. for me because the community right. supported me. But if you don't have that, and we That's see right. it in the most marginalized areas, we do have it. We know each other's names. We know each other well. We, we help yeah. each other out when we need to. But when we move up just a slight rung, just a slight rung, not even much of one, that doesn't exist. Like yeah. We always say, can you imagine your neighbor knocking on your door randomly to borrow a cup of sugar or flour? Yeah, well, of course yeah. I can. My doors used to be unlocked. Yeah, yeah. Now here you go for your gun. Here you're lucky if you know your neighbors. Right? Your direct neighbor. Yeah, yeah. That's right. And it, it's such a disconnect that in the financial circumstances that we just, we live in, right? With a below minimum wage, with welfare rates being far too low, with all of these things, if we don't know our community, how could we ever foster relationship or feel trust or feel any of those things? So it's, you know, when we often say that's an, that's a them problem. And you yeah. and I know there's no us in them. And yeah. really the them that we're describing often don't have a lot of the same problem. Sometimes they have more community than the folks who, who have typically. Yeah. It's true. I, you know, I, I just want to see us all get back together. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's the, the silver bullet for me is like, can we just all be truthful and get back together and work on each other? Um, mm. that would make for a brighter day for all of us, I think. That's yeah. a nice recipe. <laughs> and, and, you know, maybe a little, maybe a little bit delusional, but I'm, I wanted us, um, you know, to, to have this extra time. I'm so grateful for it and know that, um, we have a, a virtual handshake on yep. you coming back uh, when the book with your yep. son drops. And I'd love to have him along too, if that's a possibility. No, uh, if he's in Vancouver, that'd be great. He, although mind you, with the, by means of technology, it doesn't matter where he is, is it? It, it does not. So we can yeah, do, he, we'll come back here and do this again with him and with you. Um, yeah. And then you, you are now beholden to coming and spending time with me in the downtown east side again and seeing what we do. I so appreciate your offer. Thank you. Yeah. Lots of love, Dr. Gabriel Mate has been with us today on Better. It's been one of the best mornings I can imagine. I feel like I got lots of homework. I know you do too. Um, it's any of the stuff that the, the gentleman writes is, is well worth digging into and evaluating. And it doesn't just leave you with inquiry. It leaves you with tools, which is the most important part for all of us getting better. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Mate. A real honor. Thank you. And you take care. Bye-bye.